pleasure to welcome to our series Peter Ivany AO, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Ivany Investment Group. Peter, great to be speaking with you this afternoon. I want to open up with the current business environment. What are the, the key themes or trends that you're hearing and seeing on the ground? Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for uh, having me. Um, the key trends at the moment, I think, is, uh, well, obviously, there's the war. There's still a remnants of what happened with the virus. Um, there's inflation. Uh, so that's really sort of you know, changing the landscape quite a bit. Some are transitory and some are longer term. So in terms of what we tend to look at is uh, definitely with the war, um, that's going to create some, some deficiency in resources um, and commodities that people that we're dealing with you know, Russia and the Ukraine won't be able to get. So that's an opportunity for Australia and other countries to be a replacement uh, country for some of those resources. Obviously, oil and gas, again, very expensive. A lot of the Europeans really rely on Russian gas and they may decide to lessen their reliance. But it also means that the conversion to electric cars will uh, continue and, and increase um, and to other you know, forms of uh, you know, recarbonising the atmosphere and reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, I think, you know, with the war in particular, uh, the, the emphasis on security will continue. So I think that defence budgets will go up. So investing in defence companies will be, you know, I think a strong um, area to, get, to go into. And, um, and I think finally that um, security, that people will be, you know, wars today played out in cyberspace as well as real space. So I think you'll find there will be a great increase on cybersecurity and products that go with that. But uh, and inflation, well, let's see how long that is and what level that will stop at. But governments, they've worked out from what happened in 74 that just increasing interest rates to short-term inflationary effects will, have a, will be counterproductive, you know, create a lot of dislocation in the economy. So hopefully once the supply lines open in most things and Hopefully we'll get back to some form of open trade, but it will be different that, uh, you know, inflation will be contained at a level that we can all work with. Speaking of inflation, that's one challenge that's on the horizon. What are the other challenges that you foresee on the horizon for Australia, say, in the next 12 to 24 months? I think, in a way, you know, we are a lucky country. So I think as far as commodities and energy and energy and uranium and iron ore and those areas I think Australia would do quite well at. So I think there's a real advantage for us if we put our foot on the accelerator and um, make sure that we can be a replacement country for a lot of those goods. You know, technology is the driving force of the world and that won't stop and that'll continue at a rapid rate and, you know, um, from the first levels of technology to more advanced levels in artificial intelligence, um, robotics, you know, all, all the the new areas that uh, technology would go into. Australia actually is, is quite well advanced and you can do it from Australia. And we've just got to make sure that we have an environment that rewards people to take the risks that go into those areas. Because the difference now is that you can create a world product um, from Australia. We've done it in BNPL, we've done it with what Atlassian's done, we've done it in solar. So there's a number of areas that we're very strong. And if we can become stronger in that, you know, the way to become good at anything is to you become the country that draws the best people in a specific area because today distance, the tyranny of distance is not as prevalent or is not as relevant as it was a number of years ago. So I think if we focus on what we're good at, which is obviously 
commodities, energy, but we start moving more into the smart country and technology. And by that, I don't mean writing reports. I mean getting the right people, backing them, actually giving them money, support, infrastructure so they can survive. And if they fail, let them have another chance. Um, so that's not normally Australia style, but let's just try to create a situation where our best minds don't go offshore. There's no doubt that the retail, leisure, entertainment sectors have changed significantly in the past five or ten years, as you would have experienced it. What, what's driving these changes and what does the future look like? Well, there's no question COVID was significant for the entertainment business, but streaming was coming online anyway, because that gave people the choice to see what they wanted and when they wanted it. So that's uh, been accelerated by what's happened through COVID. And uh, I guess the difference is that it's now a place for really big players in terms of the supply side. The film side has sort of reduced a bit in terms of output compared to miniseries and television. So that's been a significant change in the business and that's probably long term, but there's still some big movies made and some highly specialised movies that are being made. But the industry's changed from the seven, six or seven major studios to now having Netflix on the scene. Disney's now much larger than it was, absorbed a lot of Fox and some other studios. Uh, the Amazon has become a significant new player into the business, and that's including some of the players, the newer players in Asia. But um, so the business is, needs a lot more money. Um, but you get a world stage straight away. Your money comes back much, much faster than it does through the movie system. And even though the cinemas are a part of the system, they really it's really gone straight out of video, DVD, straight to streaming and giving people choices to where they want to watch it and how they want to watch it. So I think that's a trend that can't be stopped. But ultimately what it's meant is that more and more money is being invested into that films, television sector. And uh, so, that, so that will continue to increase. So say for students at NIDA, for example, they've got more opportunities than they had 10 years ago. And again, same as with all this, with all technology, you can do it from your home country. You don't always have to move. I recall reading recently in a passage of a business book wherein you wrote passionately about Australia's economy needing structural change and the importance of innovation and driving value creation, which you spoke about earlier. Are you seeing a willingness from political and business leaders to actually implement some of this change and reform that's needed? I don't think it's going fast enough. I don't think we've got enough confidence um, outside our, our, our basic business skills. But I think that's starting to change because... You know, as I said before, we've got five or six people in their fields and technology that are world best. And once we get that, and once we keep them in Australia, um, successful industries grow with successful people, the world's best being in one area, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's uh, Los Angeles, whether it's San Francisco and Silicon Valley, wherever it is, when you get a concentrated concentration of people that are highly skilled, world concentration, that have an environment where they can flourish, it'll do well. So I think governments, without trying to pick winners, have got to support the industry more. We've got to encourage this more through schools uh, and education. But we actually have to believe in ourselves that we can be a forerunner in technology. If you look at Israel, I mean, some of theirs is because of the war, some of theirs is because they have to be in cybersecurity. So some of it's been sort of in that way imposed upon them. Um, but look what they've created as a tiny country of 7 million people. And they have the most NASDAQ listings um, of any foreign country. 
and they're a small country. So y you can do it, but you have to have it focused and supported. Starts with education and government's a big part of that. And then it also starts with financial incentives and encouragement. And then it starts with success breeding success. And it's got to be driven not by government, but by the people that have that entrepreneurial and innovative flair. Um, in a way, the opposite of now is what's happening in China by trying to, you know, by the Chinese government trying to maintain its power, it could really be careful that it's stopping its ability to continually innovate, worried about, you know, what some individuals can either get in terms of power or success. Um, that will be difficult to compete against an open environment like America, which is much more carte blanche and encourages people to really have a shot. Let's change gears just for a couple of minutes. I want to talk about Peter Ivany, the person. Yeah. I read that your father was a survivor of Auschwitz. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your family background and, and your upbringing, if you could. My father and both parents were, you know, survived the Holocaust, but they married in Australia. Dad was in Auschwitz for eight and a half months. 10% um, of people survive Auschwitz, so he's unique. Quite interestingly, when I have a problem in business or life, I reflect on him. And I do think that if he got through that, then I can get through anything. He, he came out, he was, I think, 32 kilos. They had to feed him with an eyedropper. Um, and some of the things that he had to do to survive Auschwitz as a 19-year-old, um, sort of beyond anyone's imagination or reckoning. And even when you listen to his testimony, yeah, he, uh, he, he survived, others didn't. My mother went into a work camp and she also survived because of her, her unique personality traits. My mother was a person, if you said something is yes, then it was, she'd always say the opposite. So when they asked her to go to bus two, she deliberately went into bus one. Bus two went to Auschwitz, bus one went to a work camp, and that's what saved her. But both of them had individual events that enabled them to survive. And apart from the fact they must have had a lot of resilience, a lot of faith in themselves or something else, that during that sort of incredibly inhumane and impossible conditions to survive mentally or physically, and that they both did. You grew up in Melbourne, as I understand it, and attended Melbourne High School, yes. very selective high school, graduated in 1971. What was Peter Ivany like as a student and what interested you? Yeah, Peter Ivany was what I would call a variable student. Um, I loved geography, I was all right at maths, but I sort of liked economics and humanities, so of course, Peter Ivany did physics, chemistry and biology, which he wasn't good at at all, just to prove to people that I could do it all. So I sort of struggled through, and of course the subjects I did no work in, I did all right, and the ones I did a ton of work in, I did not well at all, but at least I proved to myself that uh, I wasn't that good, but at least I had a shot. Um, I played football, got a half blue for football. Um, at Melbourne High, and I started, you know, sport, but I was, I was sort of a middle, sort of, sort of, I'd call it a middle-rung student, and then I failed year 11, and, you know, my mother gave me one of those sort of lectures that you wouldn't be allowed to give today, that you'll end up with no job, no hope, you're not really a businessman, you haven't got any skills with your hands, so you better do it. So I sort of, you know, I sort of reflected on that, and from that year on, I sort of was much more successful at school. Um, I was a prefect, I went for school captain, um, but again, you know, my mother said, if you're school captain, you'll fail for sure again. So that, that was uh, the night. You know, so I didn't have a chance of getting that. wasn't a great speech. Um, but from then on, I sort of started improving scholastically and started working a bit harder to improve pretty well what I was at sport and, uh, and, and a whole range of other activities that I decided to embark on. But um, 
Yeah, you know, I grew up in a European household, Holocaust survivors, and with that, you know, I feel privileged in a way that I grew up with survivors because of really the importance of things in life, the importance of education, the importance of not wasting your life, that it's not just given to you, and, and also that you have to fight for everything, and you sort of, you realise that, and that stays with you forever, really. So you finish high school and start to gravitate towards the arts. I also believe you spent time yeah. in Israel. Talk, talk to us about what happened next following high school and, and what made you study. Well, after high school, um, I went to, to Israel and then we had a terrific year. I think that was a really uh, forming year for me. We had the war. Um, very few of us worked through the war because we were in bomb shelters. We were right on the border um, of Syria. I, I drove the truck. And uh, so I got the food every day and so I watched the bombs sort of, you know, go over my head. But I was 18 and you sort of think you're indestructible, but you only need one to hit you. But we managed to get the food and bring it back to the, the kibbutz every day. Then I became the kibbutz electrician because we had to rewire the kibbutz in. The war lasted three weeks. And the person I was doing it with got pneumonia, so I became the head electrician. Wasn't that good at physics, as I mentioned before. I was also a bit colour blind, so it wasn't an easy job for me. But somehow we wired up with lights and heaters, you know, 12, 12 of the bomb shelters. I saw them a couple of years ago. They're not as good as they used to be in 73, but uh, that was then. And then I came back and I enrolled in law because that was my aim was to get into law and I got into law. And I sort of wandered around uni for a week and I just realised it's not for me. And so I quit law and uh, then I went into arts because I really felt my life was one of social reform and the human essence and, and those sorts of... And that really was where I loved the... I love kibbutz, I love youth movements, I like sports. I sort of liked, you know, team activities. Uh, so I did sociology, I did, I did economics, which has always been an interest. I did politics, which was an interest as well. And then I got an honours degree in sociology. And of course, my thesis was the social stratification of sport in Australia. And if you look at what I've done post Hoyts, I just marry the things that I'm really interested in. And they've been pretty common, you know, sport, the arts, the Jewish community and, and film, you know. And um, so I've been lucky enough to have a career in the things that I've really enjoyed. And then in 1982, you joined Cinema Group Hoyt as an Assistant General Manager of the Melbourne Cinema Centre, yeah. marking the commencement of your journey throughout the business. What appealed to you in, in working in this line of business? And, and take us through some of the tasks that you were yeah. responsible for. Well, previously, I'd worked in the government. That was a sort of extension of my arts degree. I was a sort of research officer in the um, health department in the Geelong region, in the Bowen region. And then I went to Kodak because I got married and I thought I'd better find a way to earn an income. And I did an MBA um, and then I got through that. And then, and then this opportunity came, which was, you know, really a, as much an accident in history, as much an accident that Packer and Murdoch and everyone else and even Kerry Stokes didn't want the business. You know, probably felt that video was right on the doorstep. And uh, so it's sort of fell into our hands and originally we were doing it with Village but they couldn't do it because they're owned by rank and too much foreign control and so you know uh, the four families that bought Hoyts in 82 I was part of that and I remember as I was I still remember now I was walking up Burke Street and I said I don't know why but I think this is the destiny this is a place where I sort of fit in you know arts I like it you know and um, yeah I just I've 
I've, and I've loved it ever since. And I've been in the film business since 82 and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And um, look, it's difficult when you're, you know, as a son-in-law and so your first, my job was to be in training in the beginning. So I went down a few rungs from where I was and I actually got a, another job in the health, in, 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 the, in the Premier's office actually, but I decided not to take it because I wanted to start on a journey of private companies and out of the public service. But it's an unusual way to get into private industry. I just, um, so yeah, I, was, I learned as, as assistant manager, I helped build one of the theatres. I then moved into the video business at Hoyts because I saw there was an opportunity and that's been reflective of my career where I see that there's an opportunity, nobody else wants to do it. So I thought I'd do it. I remember the managing director said this video thing will never take off, but it did. Um, so I built that part of the business up with a lot of help around me. I then got involved in film buying and booking. So I covered all the parts of the business. Um, so I had a really good working knowledge of the business, including doing the video. And then I started doing more corporate development things. We ended up buying the radio networks, Triple M, um, and we you know, moved, devolved that into Hoyts Media and Hoyts Entertainment. And then we had an advertising business, outdoor posters, production company, a number of other businesses, a distribution business. And so Hoyts, from being a theatre business that we bought off 20th Century Fox, off uh, Marvin Davis, who was uh, an oil tycoon out of Texas. He sold his share of that business to Rupert Murdoch after, um, and uh, they sold Hoyts off as, uh, as part of their purchase in America of Fox, because Fox had owned Hoyts from 1926 to 1982. Yeah, so that was, I was just lucky enough to get that opportunity. I moved from Melbourne to Sydney, and I pretty well worked in every division of the company, and I just loved it. And I just worked, and I work, it wasn't work, it was just fun. And that was obviously the genesis of you becoming CEO of Hoyts in 1988. It must have been around early 30s, I think, early to mid 30s yeah. around that stage. Yeah, well, I was uh, when, yeah, 88, so I was 34. I think a number of things had happened. Um, and uh, one of them was all the new businesses that we bought were sort of running more than the existing business. And so even though I wasn't CEO, I was sort of running more of it. Um, it was also a really difficult time for us and I thought we had about, well everyone was really a managing director to a degree, we had a family, we had some senior executives and I thought someone had to take responsibility. I remember powers taken, not given. So I went to a board meeting and I said, look, we've just got to try to sort this out. I was looking after the finance side as well, like, um, you know, which was difficult because we de the financial system was deregulated at the same time as media. So in the end, there was a lot of money spent on a lot of media that didn't really get anywhere, including our Triple M, which was a great business, but over leverage. Uh, yeah, so I just, um, then I printed myself a business card. I found a consultant that we needed one CEO and I sort of took over and I had that job till you know, a number of years. And then we, we started the rebuilding of the business with a lot of people's support around me and, and we started you know, really starting to see the difficult position we got in with leverage and interest rates being so high, but just too much leverage anyway, more competition in some of the businesses. And we, and we slowly, slowly with a group of really incredible, incredibly dedicated people turned a really difficult financial situation into something that we could then, you know, sell. And that's uh, after that, um, Len Lease and Hellman's came in, but 
That's your question, sorry. No, that's fine. Fast forward, as you said, to, to 1993, yes. and the business uh, instituted a buyout with assistance from Lendlease and US firm yeah. Hellman Friedman. Take me through this process in terms of how you managed to draw investors of, of that calibre into the business and, and why you needed investors in. Yeah, well, it's a couple of things. One, Leon had passed away, unfortunately, in 93. There was myself and my two brother-in-laws, and, and we all wanted to go different directions. The company was over-leveraged still in a competitive environment where our competitors had capital. So we needed to solve a family problem and we also, a succession problem really. And since I'd spent most of the time in the business, um, it was sort of clear that whatever succession planning we had, I was to be the CEO going forward and we looked at a few different options. The, the second part of it was that um, we had to recapitalise the business and there were a lot of opportunities, which, is, which leads to your question. And so we tried to float it initially and there was, we would have got a reasonable float away, but just before the time of the float, the market dipped a bit, but we weren't getting a terrific price. It was a sort of marginal price. And then Hellman and Friedman, who'd missed out on Triple M, who'd taken a position in Fairfax, represented by David Gonski and um, Mark Carnegie, they had a look at it and they liked a couple of things. One, that I would stay in as a shareholder. Number two, there's still great growth left in Australia in terms of multiplexes versus what they'd seen uh, in the United States, which had already had a significant build-out. And thirdly, they liked it was a one business and a dominant position and somewhere where we could take our expertise around the world because there was a lot of countries that hadn't started building multiplexes yet. So they saw the potential growth of those multiplexes uh, as a, a future of driving the business to be a global business. Um, so that was important to them. And then um, subsequently, they were in for a few years and we floated. Uh, during that period, there was a lot of money from a lot of the the major other venture capital companies, you know, KKR had a theatre business. Um, a lot of the public companies had significant um, investments from most of the other um, merchant banks, investment banks, but principally out of America. And the other thing that happened in America is the business was getting consolidated, that the people that started it in the 50s and the 40s and had built the multiplexes through the 60s and 70s had moved on or in some cases had died and their, their heirs weren't in that business. They were either in property, they were professionals, so there wasn't a continuation of the business. So the American business consolidated quite a bit and then you've had pretty well all of Europe, all of Asia and most of the other countries hadn't had multiplexes yet because after America, which was in the early 60s, the next country to build multiplexes was really Australia in the late 80s. So there's a lot of opportunities for growth. So, th th yeah, th that was an attractive investment you know, for a number of people. And that's why we could get Hellman and Friedman Lendlease and we could also get, uh, and then ultimately uh, the, the float. Ultimately we floated the business. I want to ask about growth. So as I understand it, the business went from about 40 cinemas in the early 90s or yeah. late 80s to 2000 upon the sale to Kerry Packer's consolidated press yeah. holdings in 99. How, how, do you, how do you go about building a business with, with that level of growth? How do you, how do you manage it? Well, you've got to have, well, you've got to have a lot of things. And uh, I think it was as important that the family supported me as a CEO during the period before so we could survive that. So for that, you know, Michael and Bruce were terrific. You know, in a public company or something else, we wouldn't have survived. And I think that's really important to actually acknowledge. Uh, beyond that, um, 
that's why Lendlease and Hellman's came in because they provided capital for us and then after that the public markets provided capital for us to expand and um, the way you do it I think is number one you become the best you can be and that was always my ambition to be the best I could be in the movie business so across most of the stats not the movie business the, the theatrical exhibition business we, we tried to be the best and we were at the foremost I mean when we finished we're number two in profitability rate three or four in terms of size on a global basis so we had a really good template of how we could maximize the yield from the business we we're very innovative and also we could predict if we put a theater in somewhere we could very specifically predict what sort of admissions it would be so we had a very high capability level across all the countries that we shared between the countries so we we kept improving our knowledge of how to run the business and we did it on a worldwide basis we learned from different countries how they operated um, and we just built up a, a really outstanding group of managers um, that helped us through all that and we had a lot of loyalty we had a lot of belief in the system there was a lot of passion and there was a lot of positivity you know that we could go into countries where we couldn't speak the language we find a way in some of the countries you have you, you're as good as your partners you had to find really good partners which we had in Mexico and really with the exception of Austria which was over theatred and there was a small business for us uh, and America was always a hard business but we learned a lot from it because it was overly competitive Every other market that we put a theatre in was very successful and you know, Mexico was particularly successful, New Zealand was successful, England was successful, Germany wasn't bad and Chile and Argentina and Brazil were smaller but still successful. And then so 1999, late, I think it was around about late uh, 99, November yeah. or thereabouts, Hoyts becomes a takeover target for Kerry Packer's group. I think yeah. originally they offered $2, then came back and offered $2.05 to get the yeah. deal done. What, uh, what was going through your mind at that stage and, and why the, the decision to sell? Well, you know, I've stuck to the business. I haven't been personal so far. But uh, well, what had happened is, as I mentioned, all of a sudden this, world, this global growth and also this movement from old fourplexes, the regeneration of the business, to you know, 15, 18 and 20 plexes. Also that happened at the back of Titanic opening and before Avatar that was the biggest film ever. And so everyone got confused with, oh the business has changed, people 20 plexes, you can put any... So there's a whole sort of um, positivity about the industry and what that led to is that every single investment banker in the US owned a theatre chain virtually. It's a bit like in Australia when we went into Harris Scarf, every investment bank owned a retailer. You know, um, so you knew that wasn't going to last. That's so a point in time where, the, you know, it happened in Australia because the distribution, the supply chain changed. It happened in that business because people felt that all the old theatres could be replaced. We'll put in new ones if we have more capital than the other people. We'll end up like a vacuum cleaner. We'll suck all the people from the area because there's the theatres are so good. Instead of four admissions per head per year, it'll go to six. So all of that was wrong because it was based on one film. But what was wrong is that a lot of the old theatres, um, you know, really struggled. So then what happened is that I could sort of sense that too much capital was going into business. That we, that in a hundred years you might have had a billion invested, take a number, I don't even know that much. All of a sudden you had three or four billion invested in two or three years. Um, so that was quite uh, significant. So what we're starting to see that after Titanic and The Wedding Singer and a few films, all of a sudden, you know, all this investment and the, the admissions are the same like nothing had really changed. So what happens then, you get margin erosion. The film suppliers charge more for their films. These multiplexes, instead of having 18, 
18 movie theatres with 20 films in it, it had three films in it, all at just at different times. So the films were shorter. If films run shorter, the distributor does better and the exhibitor does worse. The exhibitor does better when the films run and the film rental terms um, reduce. So, so I sort of felt that we would need a lot of capital just to maintain the level of business as it was. And so I was concerned that we wouldn't get the returns and it was sort of time. So we were fortunate that we had three bidders. We had Premier Investments with Solly. We had uh, Channel 10. They took, I think Solly had five. It was in Easy Asper, I think. He had 2% and then Kerry uh, took 19. I think the, the attraction you know, if it's cross-consolidated press, was that business then was running at 90 to 100 million of cash flow. And if they privatised it, the access to their, they would get access to their cash flow, but that's a, a question for them. So, you know, it, that, that, that's why we sold it. Uh, personally, it was difficult because I'd built it up. You know, it was a really personal investment for me, time, effort, my passion. It became my child. <laughs> David Gonsi used to say it's became, and it was. It was like I said, well, what will I do next sort of thing? Um, and that's another topic, but it was a time to sell. Also, I had a chance to sell the various parts of the business at various times. I um, always had this hang on to everything forever type mentality. And you realise that, number one, you have to go through many peaks and troughs to be successful and you have to go th you have to be able to survive the troughs and not have to sell at the trough. But secondly, it's really unfair for your family because you're completely absorbed in this business and they may get some benefits from it, but they don't get any of you because your whole, when you expand at that rate, your whole focus is just on the business, every waking moment. So it was time. I'd had enough time away from my family, away from Sharon, and it, it was time to, you know, for others. So it was a combination of those factors. I mean, in hindsight, it was a great move because obviously we, the year after that, there was GST introduced, the Olympics affected the business, there was a rider strike. The first part of B2B, the, the technology started coming and people started having whole different ideas of how the film business should look like. In two or three years, none of those things transpired and the, you know, the business went back to what it was. But those two or three years were really difficult years for the business. A number of the businesses in America went to Chapter 11, too much investment, too much competition too much money. The, your biggest expenses are rental and film hire. So they constitute, in a good business, about 60% of your revenues, 50 to 60. They'd flown up to 80 plus. So the whole dynamics of the business had then changed. And then there's a lot of consolidation, a lot of new terms bought in. And the people that then invested after that three or four year period have had very significant and good returns. And then you've got to the last piece, which is all the Chinese companies getting into the worldwide cinema business that enabled a lot of people to sell out and further consolidation. One more before we move on, because you have had a very successful career post-Hoyt as well, which I want to get to, but I read that you negotiated directly when you were doing that sale with Kerry's son, James, just at, at, a, at a very high level. How did you find dealing with the Packer family? I found them outstanding. I mean, you know, David sort of, David Gonski did a lot of work in the beginning, um, but then James obviously for the due diligence and, I mean, we were restricted in what we could give them as a public company, so they didn't really have any more information than anyone else had. But just dealing with them once they'd made the decision to increase their shareholding and go to a compulsory acquisition, very good. You know, got a good understanding of the business from Kerry, James onwards, good to deal with. Uh, understood that industry 
and obviously understood what they wanted to get from the business. And, and I found them, you know, polite, intelligent, uh, and I've sort of done a number of, you know, a number of people have asked me that question. I just found them outstanding. So, uh, no, it, it was uh, it, it was good. And, um, you know, at the end, I don't know how. The business worked out OK for them. It wasn't as good as I think they'd hoped, but it was all right. Let's explore your career post-Hoyts. You launched your family office following the sale of Hoyts in yeah. 1999. Talk me through the, the structure of the business and, and what you invest in. Yeah, well, it's changed a lot. I mean, 1999, we, we left, and I guess... It was difficult. Um, so from a personal perspective, you know, one stage you've got 5,000 people, you travel, you, you, you know, in different countries, you you know, it's a very absorbing business because it, it really is, the film business varies from hour to hour. Film opens, it's a failure, you've got to pivot, you've got to change. So you've got to be, it's a very now type, you've got to be in the present. But at least, you know, I had some choices. Um, and I could work out sort of what I wanted to do. So what I decided to do after talking with a number of people is not invest straight away, but also spend half my time doing community things. I thought it was an important thing to do. I thought it was just part of what I liked and what I thought would be important. I didn't want to have a business that was predominantly overseas, although now our business is half offshore, but it's passive investing, so I don't have to travel there. Um, and today you can easily do that with the internet and technology, so you don't have to go to a fund manager to give him the privilege of investing in his fund because he's in Boston, so he can do all of that here. And then I decided in a not-for-profit piece that I'd, I'd basically concentrate on film, um, football, the Jewish community and art, because they're my areas and I've been consistent on those. And in business, um, it was difficult because I had enough capital, but not enough, you know, so I still had to sort of, um, you know, make more money, even though it was a good outcome at Hoyts, but I still felt that we still, and I was only 44, so I still had to do some things. So I wanted a combination of private equity things that have some interest to me. And then um, the, the passive investment wasn't a big part of the business. Um, so it sort of was uh, something that I had to learn and evolve. And I've been in that business now for 23 years. And every year I get better at it. But I, I really believe, like in any business, in the first 10 years, I wasn't really that good at it. I was just sort of grasping at straws. Like a lot of people would come in. I wasn't quite sure where to focus, what to invest in. Should I look at cash flow? Should I look at capital preservation? Should I look at growth? Should I look at private equity? I didn't have that much knowledge of property. What property things did I do? So we did a lot of different things and we were, and, um, and a varied success, you know. But overall, we survived. Rule number one in business, survive. And, uh, and since then, it's become much more sophisticated and and much more um, concentrated but we've also had a number of people that have worked here um, you know that have contributed a lot you know to our business and every one of those every one of the people that have worked here um, you know have made a huge difference so we had somebody who's really expert at fixed interests and bonds so we've been in that for 15 years so we've ridden this you know reduction interest rates pretty well the private equity stuff I do myself that's where I spend my time but when I invest more, I like to be a participant, except for one fund that I've been in, well, Hellman and Friedman, since I've been in, since they're investors in Hoyts. Um, we do a lot of technology, and that's the Loftus Peak investment, because five, probably longer than five, ten years ago, we saw that technology is, uh, is part of, it's really our future. Now, 
the virus has accelerated that significantly um, and it's amazing how functional people are and how the world has changed. And that'll change investing in the future because a lot of things you think you need that you just don't. And so, and then, you know, the last pieces is we still do a fair bit of property and we do a lot of things with a number of the, the property companies because those relationships have continued. And so a lot of our opportunities that came were because of previous relationships and materialised. You know, we had relationships with Champ, we had with Babcock and Brown, Phil and I have been, you know, friends for years. So there's a whole range of opportunities that came out of relationships and then you've got new relationships that have that have come from the 20 years and that's where your investing goes so it's really important for us we probably spend less time sourcing new things because we've got enough of a pipeline and but we spend a lot of time with our existing investors but we try to make sure that we've got a balance you know, um, of investments. Uh, so number one, we like to make a profit every year, that's sacrosanct, and we like to have positive cash flow. Two, we, you know, our sort of growth capital businesses are mainly technology and private equity. Our cash flow comes out of bond and property, either mezzanine or debt investments. We don't build property, you know, we have done a couple of developments, but really as part of consortia. And, and that basically is the main, you know, focus of our business and then we, you know, have cash and we have some other, and the rest of it, we do go and have some investments into entertainment and things that we like, but we're not very successful in them overall, but we do like them. Um, so that, 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 that's got to stay at a minimum it's, and realise that it's a hobby, not an investment. So, um, yeah, and then what you'd redo, like when there's a change, when every time there's a change from the 2008 credit crisis to the number of black swan events that we've sort of in some I don't know what you call half a black swan you have to pivot so at the moment we'd be looking from last year onwards when inflation started we're looking at about 10 percent of our portfolio most the rest is sort of fixed and we re-pivot that into where we think uh, we've got to look a year, year ahead of time of where we think the, the opportunities are. And then it's to do with also our deal suppliers and um, you know, property was very, we had a very strong property after 2008. That was a terrific time for property investment, mm -hmm. debt, equity, you're getting incredible returns for the risk. Um, that has changed a little bit in the last few years as most of those investments have come to fruition, but maybe that'll pick up again. And we've done a lot of work in bonds, if interest rates go up, we'll do more floating than fixed bonds. Um, but we've really, that business unit has now got a lot of equity in it, so we, we don't have to get huge returns to make it successful. And, and so the biggest thing is going forward, in the beginning we didn't have enough funds, so we needed to do things to sort of grow the funds. And now we're in a position in the business where we just try to have more funds under management, take less risks. Hopefully they're a bit more passive because I'm getting older and there's a limited number of zoos you can build at 67 years of age. You'll be part of a group of team that builds them um, because they're quite work intensive, so you've <laughs> got to love it. So you, you, we sort of, uh, uh, not so much of the time, but we, we will be spending more and more of our portfolio. I'll be increasing our, fund, our own funds under management, which is all, it's all owned by Sharon and myself. Mm -hmm. So all our funds and, and making probably slightly lower returns um, but more passive investments as we, you know, we move into 
other things that we'd like to do with our lives as well. And then on the philanthropic side, you're actively yeah. involved in the Sydney Swans, yeah. in the Jewish community, in zoos, which yeah. you mentioned. The zoos, uh, zoos hopefully is not completely philanthropic, but we'll have to see. <laughs> <Go on now. laughs> so, so what drives your your passion in in those areas? And as you said, you're dividing half your time to philanthropic causes yeah. or, or charitable causes. So, w which are you most passionate about and most involved in? Um, most passionate varies on who needs me that year. Same as business. <laughs> I tend to focus on where the hardest problems are. That's why I did physics in year 12. Complete waste of time, but I put, because I would have spent that time doing something else doing better. But, um, but I tend to, when there's a really difficult problem, that's where I like to go, because I feel I'm not adding to the to everyone else and I'm really making a difference myself, and I feel I'm adding value and I'm, I'm useful. And uh, um, so, and, and I I try to do these things so you can add that the places are better than when you started with and that the legacy you leave and if I look at what's happened is that pretty well every organisation I've been associated with is has continued and if in many cases still and thriving you know it's had ongoing success they haven't disappeared so I do try to work on the hardest bits first and so this year, for example, we're building the Hall of Industries with the Swans. It's a really important project. It's a passion project, but I don't play. I'm a bit old for that. Um, I don't do much else. But what I do do is I help raise the money for the Hall of Industries. So that's an important role. And without the money, it won't be built. So that's a big focus for this year as it finishes the building program. And you know, other people are looking after the construction. And other people are doing different roles in the club. And the Swans is just a wonderful club. So. Footy's a passion, the Swans are a passion because they're such an incredible group of individuals and I've been there I think 18 or 19 years, 18, and um, it's just been terrific to be involved with that. Um, NIDA, the film festival, I was involved with Afters, that's film and that's an IMAX, that's just been part of, you know, since, uh, since I walked in Burke Street, you know, um, 19, was it 1980, was it? Mm -hmm. uh, 1980. So that's been a 42-year-old love affair that I hopefully never goes away. The Jewish Film Festival is another thing I've been involved with since the beginning, but it's in different hands now and, and thriving. It's really doing well. Um, art I like, not as passionate as the others, but I do love art, and mainly because the people that I've met and been involved with um, in art. And, and the Jewish community, again, it's been a long-standing involvement there. There's a lot of passionate people. I think the community has really thrived in the last 20 or 30 years. It's got incredibly good direction. We're so fortunate in the quality and the calibre of people at all different ages involved in it. Mm -hmm. The structure in Sydney really is an inclusive structure where there's roles for many, many people to be involved and it's great. And I also feel I'm giving back to my community and my children. So that's been important. So they're all important. And in the Jewish community, I do a bit less now because I had my heavy lifting, you know, <laughs> probably over 10 or 15 years. So other people are doing it. The Swans, for me, this is a big year. Um, so it just depends where you need it. Um, on that, the zoo two or three years ago was very difficult. We had to start it at a point where there was floods, rain. Well, firstly, we had the heat. Then we first had to build something that nobody had built before, all bespoke sort of buildings that you can't find a zoo architect just, you know, around the place because Taronga was built 101 years ago or something. No, 1915. So we had to get it built. Um, then we started it when the bushfires started. Then the minute the bushfires finished, we had the floods. And then after the floods, we had COVID. So the zoo's been really operating fully, barely over half its time. And yet, 
it's had a fantastic first year. Um, it's really, really, the government support has been just outstanding, but our people have been great. I mean, the executives we have there are just outstanding. And so we had, uh, I think, nearly close to 80,000 more than Taronga had in the same period wow. for a zoo in its first year. So, but that's taken a lot of manpower from a lot of people. So that's taken a fair bit of work. And, and Allied, you know, it's our leasing business. We've just now, um, you know, bought the Macquarie book and, you know, bought Ford, Hyundai and, and Subaru and Inchcape as big suppliers. So that business is now going to triple in size in one year. So that's going to take quite a bit of effort this year to, to how we absorb that and how we raise the capital necessary and to, to build the business. So, so this is a bit of a big year for that business, but there'll be a point in time um, where I'll probably spend a bit less time. But it really depends on where the demands are at the time. Mm. But I said in every day I probably focus on five or six different things, not always, sometimes two or three only, but you, you tend to sort of um, uh, work on, you know, what needs to be worked on. And, uh, but I don't, I'm not day-to-day -day operations in anything, so it's a different role. Peter Ivany AR could spend mm. all afternoon all right. asking you questions, but I'm mm. conscious of your time. Pleasure having you as part of our series and look forward to seeing what the, the next stage of, uh, of business growth looks, for, looks like for you. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. Thank you.